Thank you. Uh, you know, we, we were sure that nobody was catching anything. The only thing we were catching was ice. And then we saw a guy across the, the, the lake there on the dock, and it may have been Tim, I don't know, but all of a sudden pulled one out. There's one over there. And then the guy over here pulled one out. I think those were the only two we saw the whole time. We were out there for hours freezing. Our fire even froze. <laughs> and all we got was smoke. So, I, I'm, yeah. you know, if you're able to go out there on a day like that and catch that kind of trout, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fish with you next time. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Romans. You know, we've been going through the book of Romans, and, and as we've been studying through it, we've discovered a lot of different things. There, there are basically, there's two different audiences that are within the mix of this letter. There are people who are uh, of Israel, they're Jewish, and there are people who are outside of Israel, the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, and, and Paul is trying to help them understand how they become the church together. And, and it's all based upon what Jesus has done. Now, as he's laid all this out, he now gets to chapter 9, 10, and 11, and he really gets specific with his, his brothers, the Jews. And in these chapters, he's, he's writing to this Jewish audience. It's evident that he has this heavy burden for them that he's carrying that they might understand salvation is found in Jesus and not in the law that they have been serving for generations. Now, although this passage of Scripture is written with Jews in mind, it is relevant to everybody. The principles that are discovered here, they really are broad-based, and they aren't just for the Jews. They're with a lot of us. And we're aware that the struggle that many of the Jews had with their trying to receive salvation based upon faith because they knew that they had to do something in order to please God. It was always about doing the law and being obedient to it. Some were willing to embrace Jesus as Messiah, and yet some of them still had this thought that, yeah, but we can't abandon the law. We still have to make sure that everybody adheres to the strictest letter of the law. And Paul is trying to get them to realize it's not about that specific obedience to the law for your righteousness that's going to work. And so he addresses this issue, and the principles that he shares here with his Roman believers, they haven't changed. They go hand in hand with us even today. And there, there are a lot of people say there are many ways to get to heaven. But God says, no, there's only one way. And that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Even for the Jews, Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. Now one of the best ways to clarify what is right is by contrasting it with what is wrong. And so Paul does that here in Romans, and especially in this chapter. All right? He continues to speak about righteousness. Matter of fact, he'll even speak to the church over in Philippi. And in Philippians, that letter, chapter 3, verse 9, he talks about Jesus. He says that we need to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that, which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
So Paul is holding a people accountable for their rejection of Jesus. You can't deny Jesus and get to go to heaven simply because you're a good person. You still have to put faith in him. So I want us to begin this passage by looking at what's available in this salvation. All right, so Romans chapter 10, let's look at verse 5, 6, 7, and 8. For Moses, he writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. See, Paul has continued to contrast this law versus faith as he moves forward in this passage of Scripture. He's actually quoting from the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 5, all right, that Moses records and he writes as an example of law's demands. You keep the law, you get to live. You break the law, you don't. That's, that's what the law basically is saying. All right, so for God's people, what that meant was if I keep the law, I get to go into the promised land that God has been telling us about. All right, and ultimately that equates for them is the essence of eternal life. That, that I'm going to be so blessed by God that he's given me not only a land here in this world, but I get to have a residency with him even after I die. He speaks of righteousness that Moses described through revealing the law. The law was given to the people of Israel only. It was given through Moses. But the problem with the law is that nobody can keep it. We, we just can't fulfill it in our own obedience to it. Everybody, every one of us, every one of us has probably broken one aspect of that law or another, except one. That's Jesus. He was able to fulfill all the law's commands. Now Israel is an example of this. And so Paul will even write to the church in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 13, he says, For all who rely on works of the law, they're under a curse. It's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. Now he goes on and says, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Why? Well, for the righteous will live by faith. But the law, he says, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. He goes on and he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by, come, by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, theoretically, there's an option given in the law uh, that, that helps us attain the rewards of righteousness by keeping the law to the letter. The problem is, it's impossible. 
that we're not able to do that. So since it can't be done, this theoretical option was always really meant to point the way to another option, which is faith. And that was even demonstrated in the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham. Not because he was obedient to God in the things, but because he believed God. And that faith in God was credited to him as righteousness. So by contrast, Paul, he, he is personifying righteousness based on faith here in verses 6 and 7. And, and by introducing Deuteronomy chapter 30, he quotes them here in these two verses. He quotes those verses, and it's applicable to this point. So listen what Deuteronomy 30, 12, 13, and 14 says. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea and bring for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So, so here Paul is showing us that Receiving salvation is not as hard as a lot of people want to make it to be, all right? When people try and come up with their own ideas and their speculations about this and about that, how they can make salvation, they make it too difficult. Paul is speaking now of an approach taken to obtain righteousness that God expects, but it's not based upon what we do to gain it. He wanted the Jews, and he really he wants all people for that matter, to, to understand that righteousness before God can only be obtained through one's faith in Jesus. Now, seeking to approach God to gain his acceptance through works of law or any other means just isn't going to work. It hasn't worked in the past, and it's not going to work for us today or in the future. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't do anything to achieve it on our own. Moses says basically that no one needs to go up to the heavens or cross the sea to get God's word because it's already been given to them, this word of salvation. And they already have it. They just need to follow it and trust it. Put their faith in what God says. So, Although the approach may be somewhat different today, the principle, I think, still remains the same for us. People today are not genuinely concerned with keeping the law. However, while we may not be concerned about keeping the law, we all think, or a lot of people think, that because we are doing good, God is going to overlook our bad and let us in. Right? But that doesn't work. Many people are depending on their own morality, or they're depending on the fact that I go to this church or to that church. And they have all these other ideas and avenues that they think that they're going to use to get to heaven. But none of those will ever secure the righteousness that God demands in order for us to stand in His very presence. It is obtained only through faith. So Paul will even write in Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not the results of works so that no one may boast. Now, Paul applies this very same thought to what we're going to call faith righteousness. All right? 
And it is, it's much more acceptable way of getting to heaven than the Jews were trying to do by their law righteousness. All right? So the Jews had been waiting for Messiah to come. They knew that he would come from heaven. The scriptures equate that over and over again. But their way their weight really was pointless for them, especially when Paul is speaking, because he's already come. The problem is they're refusing to accept that Jesus was the one. There was no need for anybody to go not only to heaven, but go down to the abyss in order to bring Christ back from the dead, because he is already risen from the dead, and his resurrection is that which secures them in their faith. In essence, Paul is declaring that there is nothing left for men to do but believe. And we put our faith in his sinless life, in his vicarious suffering on our behalf, in his substitutionary atonement and death on the cross as a sacrifice for my sins, and more so, the glorious resurrection, which empowers all of this to become real for us. You see, faith in the finished work of Christ is enough and it's essential there's nothing else going to get you there but believing that Jesus is the one who can do that now there is no need to work in an effort to earn our salvation and God hasn't provided any other kind of means that's hidden or obscure or a mystery yet because he's made it known to us in Jesus. We don't have to go to the ends of the earth to search it out and to find it. We don't have to, to go down into hell and say, is it down here somewhere? Can I figure out how to get... It's all found in Christ, all right? Because he bled and he died for us, which we just celebrated that fact with our communion, did we not? His body was broken and his blood was shed and what he did for us on the cross, and then how he ascended into the abyss where he confronted and he defeated sin. He defeated death that has no more power or hold over us, and he defeated Satan, the adversary. He is victorious, all right? And because he rose back to life again from the grave, all we have to do is to look at him in faith and he saves. Now this Deuteronomy passage here in Deuteronomy 30 that Paul is quoting is an example of God's word being available or accessible. It's right there. Matter of fact, in verse 8, he's equating it with his message or his preaching to the people there in Rome and through this letter and the gospel as it goes out that they've heard it. Even the greatest of things were possible for someone to do it would be unnecessary because Christ has already done what is necessary. So Paul and others preach what we must do to attain or receive our salvation. It's a word of faith. And he says, it's as close as the words on your mouth and as the thoughts in your heart. It's not far from you. It's always right there, and it's in Jesus. We don't have to discover it as an ancient quest going out somewhere to find the hidden treasure that's going to give us the key to our salvation. He's presented it. 
And they have received that through the gospel message that was preached to them. So the question then comes is, why is this available? Let's look at verse 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, since there really is no sense in which we as sinners are capable of doing anything, actually, that's going to produce our own righteousness, there are still these conditions that he's laid out that will do that for us in order for us to entertain the offer of salvation that was accomplished by Jesus, he mentions two such conditions, faith and confession. Now those things are necessary for receiving his righteousness. However, I want to briefly say they're not the only things necessary. They are necessary, but there's other things that he tells us in the rest of Scripture as well. Let me briefly throw out a few other things. In order for you to find this, you have to hear it first. Somebody has to tell you, all right? which is wonderful for us to send people into the world with the gospel message. Because if they don't hear about it, how are they going to believe? So he says hearing the gospel is one. He'll tell us in verse 17 in Romans 10, so faith, it comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, such hearing is not altogether uh, dependent upon us, but it is dependent upon us to the extent that when we hear it, that we listen and we contemplate what is being said. We don't close our hearts and our minds to the gospel message. Peter's going to tell us in the book of Acts chapter 2 as the church is beginning to, to explode right off the bat in verse 38, he's going to tell us, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We need to repent. We can't continue to live a life of sin, all right? But it's not about totally being obedient because your obedience is never going to get you there. But you've got to repent, which not only means just being sorry for the things you've done that are bad, but that, that sorrow creates within you a hate of the things that you've done that have been sinning against God and against yourself and against your fellow man, so much so that you say, I am no longer going to do them. It's a contrast, see? Repentance was often a military term that meant as you're walking and they'd say repent, it was a turn around and go the other direction. So if I'm living a life of sin, my repentance is to turn around and no longer sin, but to live faithful to God in obedience to His commands. Being baptized is another one. Immersion into the saving relationship with Jesus Christ into His name. Again, back in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which we just read. But also in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Paul had said, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, that's the aspect of repentance. You can't because you died to sin. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death. Why? In order that 
just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Paul will go on in Galatians chapter 3 and he will say, but now that faith has come, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, which is the law. We've talked about that. All right? For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are as baptized into Christ have put on Christ. But here in our passage in Roman, Paul is talking about these two conditions, faith and confession. Why doesn't he talk about all the others as well? Well, Let's just say that not every condition has to be mentioned every time God is talking about salvation in the Scripture. We expect to bring the whole study of the Word of God together. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be thoroughly, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, I, I know that some people will present the idea that all you have to do is believe in God and you're saved. But the truth is the Bible never says that all you have to do is believe and that's the only condition. As we read the fullness of Scripture, we discover that, that it is the necessary means by which we are saved. And it is a necessary condition but the fact that he brings confession along with this in this passage of Scripture gives us an understanding we've got to do more than just believe. James is going to write a whole letter in, a, in that section. He's going to say, your faith without works is dead. You've got to do something if you're going to believe. You can't just say, well, I believe. Well, that right there just did something. You said, I believe, right? That's the confession aspect. So he brings into confession as an equal aspect of condition in our faith that shows that we present ourselves to him and we acknowledge who he is. The first condition here, though Paul mentions, is faith. All right. Paul mentions confession first, however, in, in his passage of Scripture here in 9 and 10, but that's because of the order in which it was presented in Deuteronomy 30. All right. Based upon that, he says that. But when he moves to verse 10, he puts it in a more proper, or more logical order. We believe first, and then we confess. So let's look at our faith. True and complete faith is this. It's, it's in essence, it's mental assent. All right? Assent is a judgment of the intellect regarding something that is true. All right? And, and it's a statement. So this is what Scripture means when it's speaking of believing that something is. I, I acknowledge it. I, I assent to it. I have faith in it. So John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, These things are written in his letter so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what is it that we believe? We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's mental assent. I believe that something is true. Hebrews 11:6, the writer says, And without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. So here in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, he says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus 
is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here Paul says that we must believe that God raised him from the dead. But is that all we have to believe? Is the resurrection of Jesus? That he died and he came back to life? But did not he raise Lazarus from the dead? Did not he raise Jairus' daughter from the dead? Has, have there not been other people that have been raised from the dead? So it's not necessarily just that he's alive again that we believe. There's more to it than that. It's not the only thing we believe. So you go back to verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 31 of John, which we just looked at, and Hebrews eleven sixteen. There are other conditions that are based on this. Even back in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Paul tells us that Jesus' death is a propitiation sacrifice for our sins, all right, through faith in his blood, what he has done and his blood that was done. So it's more than just that he's alive again. So why is it the resurrection is the only thing that he is stating here in Romans 10, 9, and 10? Well, I think it's this reason. Because there's a strong connection between Christ's resurrection and his lordship. The authority that he has as the Son of God. Listen what Romans 1, 4 says. This is about Jesus. That Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Why? By His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So His resurrection clarifies that He is Lord. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 through 22, Paul will tell them that having the eyes of your hands enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all authority and rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. You see, by his resurrection, God has authorized him to be Lord and Christ and ruler of all things. Believing in his resurrection means we believe in who he is as Lord. The second major aspect of our faith is trust. It's not just assent and acknowledgement and agreement with that, but it's also trust. All right, so... Trust is a, is a decision of the will regarding something that you are willing to surrender. Maybe it's of yourself or of something you value into the care of somebody else. We all do it daily in, in things such as we, we surrender or we trust our children into the hands of a babysitter. All right? We put them into their care. We trust our car into the hands of that mechanic right? We trust that I'm going to go to this beautician and my hair is going to look wonderful when I come out. I mean, we put our trust in a lot of other people on a daily basis. Scripture describes trust as believing in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus makes that statement in John 3.16 when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It also describes it as not only believing in something, but believing on something, which is Jesus Christ himself. Ananias makes this statement when he's talking with Paul at Paul's conversion to Christ. In the book of Acts, chapter 22, verse 16, Ananias says, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name on his name. It's this initial act and the ongoing state of mind in which we entrust or we surrender our whole self completely into the hands and into the care of Jesus. So here's a question. Why is so much emphasis based on faith as a condition for salvation? Because faith especially that trust aspect, it takes all the emphasis away from what I do and it puts it on what he has done and is doing. He's the one that's doing it. So I put my faith and my trust in him. And it gives him all the glory rather than me boasting about what I've done because I can't do anything. So, because this sums up all the attitude of the heart that is consistent with grace. And by its very nature, the righteousness that is attained by faith, it turns the spotlight on Jesus rather on my works. Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 11, verse 6, but if it's by grace, then it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So I'm telling you, you can't do anything to get to heaven. You've got to trust and believe that He has done everything that's going to make you righteous enough to stand before God. And He gets the glory because it's His righteousness. Now that second condition that Paul mentions here besides faith is confession. Namely, that's our confession of faith in Jesus. Now make most like this is a condition of our relationship and our righteousness. The word of faith requires a response. We have to respond somehow to it, both internally and externally, from our heart and from our mouth, is what Paul is telling us. To confess means to actually say something, to agree with or to acknowledge the truth about something. And so what we are agreeing with is the gospel message of Jesus Christ that He is who He said He is, and He did what He said He did. Now, this is also a public spoken confession of faith. Sometimes it's called the good confession in Scripture. So, who does the Bible say made this good confession? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, Paul says that we are to fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
He goes on and he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Not only are you supposed to make this good confession in the presence of many witnesses that you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, but Jesus himself made that confession as he stood before Pilate that he is the Lord, that he is the Son of God. Now, what must specifically be confessed then? We need to confess that Jesus is Lord. Listen what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And to the Corinthians, he writes in his second letter, chapter 4, verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So what does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord? The word Lord means owner, master. And when you confess that Jesus is your Lord, you are acknowledging that he is your owner, and that you are his possession, you are his servant. In essence, you really are his doulos, his slave. He's your master. He owns you. There is a strong connection between the Greek word kurios, which means Lord, and the Hebrew word, the Old Testament for God, Yahweh. All right? In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we call it the Septuagint, the word kurios is used to translate the word Yahweh from the Old Testament Hebrew language into the Greek. Right? Now, it is translated Yahweh to kurios over 6,000 times. That's a lot. Now, in light of that, the fact that Jesus is predominantly called kurios, Lord, in the New Testament... That's evidence that he then is identified as God. He is a part of this trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. All right? This Yahweh, Kurios, in the New Testament, is who Jesus is identified as, Lord. Now, here's another interesting thing. Jesus is called Savior about ten times in the New Testament. He's called Lord around 700 times. So you see why the Jews were upset when the church was calling Jesus Lord <laughs> because they're equating him with being God. To them that was blasphemy. That is exactly why they crucified Jesus because he was proclaiming the fact that he was God. Now, when are we required to make this good confession? Well, it's made at the time of our baptism. We see that in, in, in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, when Ananias brings that up to Paul, when he says you need to rise and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That is our act there, and it's also given throughout one's life. Jesus, matter of fact, makes this statement in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 32 and 33. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me or confesses me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. 
But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, or chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. So these two conditions, faith and confession, they go hand in hand. They work together in our acknowledgement of who Jesus is. Their focus is the same. It is the person and the work of Jesus. They are equally necessary for salvation, as Paul language clearly points out here. And in verse 9, he uses a little word. This little word is called if, I-F, right? It expresses, it expresses conditionality. And it introduces these two conditions, which are joined by the simple conjunction, another little word, and. So he says, if you confess and believe, then the result of both of those is that you will be saved. Now in all of this, let's not forget that Paul is writing these things and he's showing the Jews their lack of faith is the reason why they don't have their salvation. This isn't God's fault. He's provided it for them. They're refusing to acknowledge who Jesus is and what he has done, and they want to continue to work on this law righteousness on their own. So, this salvation that he's offering, to whom is it available? Let's look at verses 11, 12, and 13. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The righteous requirement for salvation is equally available to the Jews who have been, in essence, worshiping God for generations, and to the Gentiles who didn't even know He existed. It's available to all people, to everyone, is what he says. Verse 12, once again, emphasizes the main point that Paul has been making since the very beginning of his letter. And he makes the same point in other letters as well, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and in Galatians chapter 3 and Colossians chapter 3. The point is that Paul is making that Jews and Gentiles are no different when it comes to salvation. The Jews don't have a leg up on them. And the Gentiles are no better off than the Jews. They're both on equal footing when it comes to their salvation because it's all based upon their faith in Jesus Christ. Now remember God's purpose for calling the Jews His special people, right? That they are the, the nation of God, the children of God. They're His people. And the purpose was not for their salvation, but for our salvation. He selected them so that He would bring Messiah, Jesus, into this world then who would ultimately be able to save the whole world if they would put their faith in Him. Ultimately, what that does is it creates one body of Christ, the church. They were all a part of 
him in this. So, this gift of righteousness is offered to everyone who believes. It's taken from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. He's already used this and referred to it back in, in Romans 9, chapter, verse 33. Paul adds, however, from that Isaiah passage, two little words. Who, instead of saying, whoever believes, he says, in him, meaning Jesus. Therefore, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Those who meet God on judgment day, they will be robed in the righteousness of Jesus and not their own righteousness because Jesus will, will enable them not to have to worry about anything. This gift of righteousness is for everyone who believes. Everyone who calls. Now that statement, everyone who calls, comes from the book of Joel, the prophet, chapter 2, verse 32. And it came, and it shall come to pass, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now Peter quotes that in Acts chapter 2, verse 21. And Ananias quotes it there, alludes to it in Acts chapter 22, verse 16. So who calls on the name of the Lord for what? For our salvation. And this salvation is in abundance to the riches of God that He is willing to bestow on anyone who would believe in Jesus. And He has enough for both Jews and Gentiles. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, or if you've never called on Him for salvation, if you've never confessed Him as Lord before others, or if you've never repented of your sins or been baptized, what is keeping you from it? Why are you waiting? We don't know what tomorrow will bring. You see, He's done all the work and he simply asks you to come to him, and he will graciously give it to you. But you've got to believe he keeps his promise. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for today. Father, I, I know that I'm not perfect. I know that there are things that I have done that have offended people. That, Father, I've done publicly, privately, that have offended you. And I don't deserve this gift of grace that carries with it salvation. And yet, by faith, I trust you that what you have done in Jesus and through him for me is sufficient. Father, and I know that there are others here today, this morning, that they, they believe that, but they've never really confessed it before men. They've never really surrendered wholeheartedly to you. They've never repented of their sins and they continue to, to try and live them on their own basis. Some here have never been baptized into Jesus and His death 
and his resurrection. Father, why are we laboring at this so long that we just don't surrender to you? I don't know. But Father, I pray that you will prick our conscience by your Spirit to move us to call upon your name and you will save. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.